Good morning, church. Welcome to worship here at 11 o'clock at First Baptist. My name is Pastor Ryan. Um, I'm just filling in for Pastor Mike today. He's out um, enjoying some, uh, some vacation time, and I just uh, got the privilege of being able to speak to you today, and I, I thank you for being here. I'd like to welcome those on Facebook or YouTube as well as you join with us in worship. We're going to be in a very familiar passage today, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to look specifically at verses 11 through 21. 11 through 21. How many of you all, um, as you uh, grew up, uh, was John 3.16, probably one of the first verses of Scripture that you memorized? Um, how about Psalm 23? How many may have been that for you all? Combination of the two. Um, and so that's what we're going to, that's included in what we're looking at today. And it was no different for me. John 3.16 was a verse that I memorized very early on. My folks did not take me to church until I was uh, 10 years old. But even before I started going to church, I knew John 3.16. Um, at my elementary school that I attended, there was a Presbyterian church across the street. And during that time, they would actually walk you from the school on Friday afternoons. And we would cross the street and go to this Presbyterian church for an hour. And we would learn Bible verses. And we would sing songs and hear stories uh, from the Old Testament and the New Testament about the Lord. And uh, I learned this passage very early on in my life. Uh, but I wanted to revisit it today. Uh, again, a very, very popular scripture in John 3. It's kind of, you know, uh, one of the things uh, during the time of being shut in and, and uh, staying at home more uh, is, uh, well, there's a couple things I, I've learned to do uh, differently. And one of them is I learned to cut my own hair. I hope you see that I did a good job for you all today, cutting my, what little I have left of here today. But I also have revisited some of the most familiar, some familiar passages of Scripture and just reread those and thought on those. And this is one of them. And so we're going to look at that, John chapter 3, verse 11 through 21. Uh, we'll read that in just a moment. In the um, early church, they developed creeds um, and uh, statements of faith. Uh, one of those is called the Apostles' Creed. Within the first two or three hundred years of the church, being in formation before they had a completed Bible like we do. They were still working on formulating the canon of Scripture and getting the letters and the Gospels and Acts and all these other wonderful books in the New Testament that we have to read today were still being put into one volume for the church during this time. But they had creeds that helped them solidify their faith as believers, their Christian faith. And one of those was called the Apostles' Creed. And it begins with the phrase, I believe. I believe, or we believe, depending on which, which version you look at. But Christians throughout the centuries have been marked and defined by what they believe, and more precisely, who we believe in. Uh, true belief is more than just, more than head knowledge. It's more than what you know. It's more than um, just intellectual thought. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, when he says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. So our belief as Christians rises up from the core of who we are, from our heart. Paul says that if we believe the right things in our heart about Jesus, then we make a right confession about him when we say that Jesus is Lord. So the confession is a result of a changed and transformed heart that believes the right things, the biblical things about Jesus, the things about Jesus that he himself taught us about who he was. John wrote the entire gospel, his entire gospel, which is my favorite. I love the writings of John. 
named my son, my second child, uh, John, uh, after this apostle. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we named him John, because I love his writings and have studied them a lot over the years. But John sums up the purpose of his gospel. In chapter 20, verse 31, John says these, these things, all these things that he has written about in his, in his gospel, all the life and the activities of Jesus, his miracles, his words, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all those things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that you might believe the right things about Jesus. And by believing, you may have life in his name. John wanted God to work right belief into the hearts of people so that they may believe and confess the right things about Jesus so that they might have life, eternal life in his name. This is John's chief desire for all people that hear the gospel. For you, even today, 2,000 years later, you sit under the reading of John's gospel, his inspired work. And he wants the same thing for you, for you to hear his word, hear the word of God, believe the right things about Jesus, that you may have life, that you may be changed, repent of your sins, turn to Christ and believe in him as Savior and as Lord. The primary Greek word that we see in John's gospel for believe the, our English translations have believe, it's the Greek word pistio, which means to be true or to be persuaded of or to place your confidence in something to be true. John uses this word in his gospel alone over 100 times. And if you're ever reading any book of scripture and the author of that book uses any word 100 times, you better tune into it and you better understand what he's trying to communicate. John wanted people to believe there's no question that John's chief aim is for them to believe Christ and to believe in Christ, not just about him, but in him. This is one of the most popular stories in John's gospel. You've read it before, I know. Nicodemus, this curious Pharisee and ruler of the Jews, he wanted to talk more to Jesus. He was curious. He came to him at night under the cover of darkness. And Nicodemus really leads with flattery, right? Rabbi, calling him by a title, Rabbi. We know that you have come from God as a teacher. Keyword, as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs that you do unless God were with him. So he leads with flattery. He says something true about Jesus, right? But Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus really doesn't ask. You look at verse 3. I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? He answers a question Nicodemus did not ask. Nicodemus did not ask, how can I go to heaven? Nicodemus did not ask, how can I be a part of the kingdom? Their idea of what the, the messianic kingdom of the Messiah was supposed to be, uh, a defeat and an overthrow of the Roman, you know, Roman soldiers, the Roman uh, empire at the time um, over the Jews. That's probably what they thought they were looking at in a Messiah. But Jesus was a different kind of Messiah. He had a kingdom that wasn't of this world. And Jesus says, if you want to be a part of that, that kingdom, you must be born again. He told Nicodemus that what you can do is not the answer. You can't do anything to get into the kingdom. Nicodemus wanted to know what he could do. Jesus told him that he needed a new heart. He needed to believe. He needed to be born again. So Jesus then begins throughout the passages that we're going to read, the few verses that we're going to read. He begins to deal with Nicodemus's unbelief. So if you'll stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word, uh, we'll read verses 11 through 21 in John chapter 3. John 3, 11 through 21. 
Jesus says, I assure you, we speak what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about things that happen on earth, you don't believe. How will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, Lord, we thank you for another opportunity together in your house to hear your word proclaim, um, to uh, see you move uh, through your words. I just pray that you would move in the hearts of people, open ears, open our hearts so that we might receive it, understand it, and seek to live it out in our lives. God, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for this opportunity together as your church, as your bride, as we worship you through hearing your word. Again, we pray you be glorified, exalted, and honored this morning as we hear from you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So the first thing that I want to deal with this morning, there's three points. You'll see them on the screen there. Three points. Um, I first want to deal with the problem of unbelief. Jesus begins to tackle what Nicodemus's chief issue, his chief problem was. Nicodemus was a man who was a teacher of the law. It said that he was a ruler of the Jews and he was a Pharisee. And Jesus says in verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? He should have understood God's word better than anyone when Jesus begins to talk about being born again. And when Jesus began to talk about the spirit of God doing a new thing in the hearts of his people, that should not have been a foreign topic to Nicodemus. Nicodemus should have known that the Old Testament, which was their scripture at the time, spoke a lot about God doing a new thing in the last days, in the days of his Messiah, that he would do a new thing with his spirit, right? So the concept of being cleansed by the spirit was clear in the Old Testament. So let's, uh, one of those passages is Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27. Um, it's one of the clearest passages that teach us about what Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand, this concept of being born again, this new work of the spirit in the life of God's people. Ezekiel 36, 24, God says through the prophet, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. Just to start there, the Jewish people, because of persecution, because of different nations coming in and taking them over, Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans, had driven many of the Jews out into the rest of the world, had driven them out into the nations. God intended at the last days, during the days of his Messiah, to gather them back in to the fold. Gather them from all the countries, and I will bring you to your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes 
and carefully observe my ordinances. Nicodemus had a need to be cleansed spiritually. He needed the Spirit to do a new work in him, and that was his problem. Jesus was saying, you can't do anything to enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to be cleansed. And again, this was a concept that should not have been foreign to Nicodemus. Which is made even more clear in verse 11 when Jesus says that Nicodemus has rejected the testimony of God the Father and Jesus the Son. Nicodemus was supposed to be a man of God who followed God's law, who knew God's law. But here Jesus, notice the pronouns that he uses, they're plural. We speak God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What we know and we testify to what we have seen and you do not believe. Right? He does not accept our testimony. This is made, so made evident that his main problem was one of unbelief. He did not believe the testimony of God the Father and of Jesus the Son. And it's no true, right? No true, no different for any of us that man needs deliverance from unbelief. And Paul sums it up in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Romans 1, 18 through 25. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's there. There's evidence for it. They suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. God has made himself known to people. Our main problem is not, not that we don't know enough. It's that we suppress the knowledge that we have been given. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God... They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what was created instead of the creator who is praised forever. So this is true of many like Nicodemus who claim to be followers of God, who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus all around the country today. They're like Pharisees, right? We think that God wants what he wants is a clean outside. We think that if we can just clean up who we are on the outside, if we can get a better job, if we can make more money, if we would just make better moral choices, be decent people, and go to church as often as we can, as if being here is what the chief thing that God wants you to do. Being here is important. This is not belief, though. If we just do the right things, God will be pleased with us. But Jesus says that isn't enough. You can't do enough to enter the kingdom on your own merit. One commentary puts it this way. You can't keep enough rules. You can't give enough money. You can't attend enough services. You can't memorize enough verses. You didn't do anything spiritually, anything to be born physically. And you can't do anything to be born spiritually. To be born again is an act of God. It's an act of his spirit. And the problem of unbelief is that it isn't one you can fix on your own. You can't fix the problem of unbelief. You need the help of the good physician. You need the help of God. You need him to do what only he can do, which is to wake up your dead heart and to give you new life. You need to repent. You need to be born again. Nicodemus respected Jesus, maybe. Uh, possibly, or at least, at the very least, 
This curious Pharisee had more positive than a negative opinion of him, but he did not have belief. He saw the works of Jesus. He was curious about Jesus, but he had not surrendered everything to follow him. He wasn't willing. That's why he came at night, right? There was a reputation he had as a Pharisee, as a teacher of law, to meet with Jesus publicly in front of people would have put his own reputation, his own status at risk. So he came to Jesus at night, which in and of itself tells us that this man has not reached a point yet of surrendering everything in order to follow Jesus. In the next few verses, verses 13 through 17, Jesus begins to unravel the solution of unbelief. And this is very important for us. Again, we've heard these things before. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time, you've heard everything that I'm about to say. You've heard. You know about the cross. You know the significance of the cross. You've memorized at least one of these verses, if not two of them. But they're all important for us to hear and to understand today that this is the solution of unbelief that Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. In verse 13, Jesus is claiming to have authority, right, to speak about these truths because of where he's from, because of his origin, who he is. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He had been to the throne room of heaven. He had, matter of fact, he had come from the throne room of heaven. The reason he knew so much about the things of God is because that's who he was and he came down. Who can teach more about the things of God than the, than, than the God, the Son, the eternal member, second member of the Trinity who comes down to earth and teaches you? The Bible teaches us that God, the Son, has always been. There has never been a time where God, the Son, was not. He has never not been. I know that was a double negative. Some of you teachers in the room may have cringed, but he has never not been. God, the Son, has always existed. Before the incarnation, before the flesh and blood arrival of Jesus, he was the second member, the eternal member of the Trinity, in perfect union with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees often, what's funny about the Pharisees is they often wanted a voice. They often wanted some sign of Jesus to confirm what Jesus was saying. As if God in the flesh wasn't enough for them. There was always more that they wanted. Here was Jesus saying, I am that voice, right? You want a sign, Jesus was the sign. They wanted to hear from heaven. He was a voice from heaven. A lot of times they would demand a sign of Jesus just after he gave them a sign. They needed more than what Christ had given them. If you look at the, the passage of where Jesus takes a little boy's lunch and he feeds 5,000 people with it as a miracle, right? We read that. It's one of the few miracles of Jesus that's recorded in all of the Gospels. Even after that, they demanded more. They wanted to know more. They wanted to see more of Jesus. They would not be satisfied by more signs. They would not be satisfied if a voice from heaven spoke itself. But that's what Jesus was. He was the voice. He was the sign. And in verse 14, Jesus quotes an Old Testament account that surely Nicodemus knew well. We probably know it well as well. This is where Jesus begins to explain the significance of his own death in order to bring eternal life to those who believe. In verse 14, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake. And that's a reference uh, to Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. You probably know the story well, even if you didn't remember where it was at. But the people of Israel got impatient with God once again, and which wasn't uncommon. Sometimes God was merciful with them. Sometimes God was patient with them. But this particular time, he decides to deal with them in judgment. They got impatient again with Moses and with God. They began complaining. Uh, and due to their complaints and their unbelief, God sends snakes into their camp to strike them, and the people began dying. 
And so the people cry out to Moses. They need their mediator again, right? That's what Moses was for the people of Israel. He was their mediator, their go-between. Who's going to speak to God on our behalf? Moses was the man that they went to when they wanted to hear from God. It's funny, they complained against Moses all the time when they had complaints. But when they needed to hear from God, they went to Moses. And Moses was their mediator. And he goes before God and God instructs him to build this bronze snake, right? We probably think of something small on a stick. It was probably much bigger than what we imagine because over a million people had to be able to see this thing. So God instructs him, build this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up where everybody can look at it. And those who look on the snake will be physically saved. They would be healed. In order to be saved, the people had to look on the thing that was cursing them. The people had to look upon the thing that was striking them, that was the source of their problem. They had to look on the source of their judgment in order to be saved. In reality, we're no different than the children of Israel. We grumble and we complain. Uh, we decide how and when we're to take charge of things in our lives. Our grumbling may be different, when we, but we grumble nonetheless. You know, we grumble about what we have or what we don't have. We grumble about our circumstances. We grumble when we think we don't have something we think we deserve to have. We complain about the wilderness that we're in instead of trusting God as he leads us to a land of promise that he's told us is waiting. And Jesus compared his death on the cross to, this, to Moses lifting up this snake in the wilderness. He said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The premise is the same, that all who would look to the Son of Man being slain upon the cross would be spiritually saved. And it's important that we understand what Jesus is teaching here. If we understand what the cross is, that the cross is a representative of our punishment, it's God's wrath being dealt out on His Son for our sakes, we call that substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place. So when we look to the cross, we see the source of our own. We see the, what happens as a result of our unbelief. We see the wrath of God being poured out on our sin. We look to the source of our judgment, the cross. And in the same way that the people were saved physically in the wilderness, we're saved spiritually when we look to the cross. It was a place of punishment. Jesus took what we deserved. And if we look to him and we believe, he promises not just life, but he promises eternal life. Eternal life. This goes beyond what you and I have here and now. Jesus doesn't just promise a more abundant earthly life. Jesus promises life eternal. And I sometimes think that we don't understand the significance of eternal life from Jesus' standpoint. And what he's offering us when he says that we can have eternal life in him. It's more than just a life that's unending. It is that. It's unending. But life that's unending is only glorious and good if what you are enjoying forever is glorious and good. We'll repeat that one more time because I want us to understand that. Life that is eternal and unending is only good and glorious if what you are enjoying forever is good and glorious. John MacArthur describes eternal life this way. He says, in essence, it's nothing less than participation in the eternal life of the living word, Jesus Christ. It's the life of God in every believer, yet not fully manifested until the resurrection. It's something that believers now participate in. We have it. It's a guaranteed thing for those who are in Christ. We have eternal life. But we're going to die one day. That's a reality as well. So eternal life is, is a promise that gets beyond physical death, right? 
It's a promise of eternal life with Jesus that will be consummated and made more fully aware of upon our own resurrection. It's life eternal in the perfect presence and the glory of Christ. Heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. I'll say that one more time. I want to make sure you hear that. Heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. Verse 16 goes on to say that the cross, which is a despised instrument, right? It was, we celebrate it today, but during Jesus' time, the cross was, it was a place of punishment. It was a place of criminalization. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was a curse to be hung on a cross. It was despised, looked upon with fear. But that cross would be the means that God would display his matchless love for his people. So unlike those who refuse to look at the snake during the days of Moses and they perish, those who look to Christ will be saved and never perish. So the solution to unbelief is to look on the one who died on the cross, believe in him, trust in him, repent of your sins. The word perish that Jesus uses in verse 16 comes from a Greek word that means to destroy, to abolish, or to put to ruin. Christ died so that those who trust in him would not come to ruin, so that they would never perish. Here's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. He's saying there's something worse than physical death for those who do not believe in Jesus. There is something worse than physical death for those who fail to repent and to believe in Christ. Eternal ruin awaits. There's something worse than death. To perish for eternity is awful punishment. You'll die. You'll still die. Physical death. But then you'll die again for eternity. I think verse 16 teaches us two very important things about the atonement of Christ and what the cross is for us. First, it teaches us that the motive for the cross was love. The love of God the Father and the love that he has for the world was the motivation for the atonement of the cross. And some may ask the question, you know, how do, how do we know God is a God of love or how do we know that he loves the world? Well, the cross is the answer to that question. The cross demonstrates the radical nature of God's love for his people, God's love for those who would trust Christ. Second thing, verse 16 teaches us about the cross is its effect. The, atone, the effect of the atonement is eternal life. Jesus actually accomplished something for us as his people, for those who trust him, who put their faith in him. What Jesus did was actually accomplish something on the cross for you and I. He accomplished the salvation of all who would turn to him and trust him as Lord. It wasn't happenstance, right? Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He laid it down. It was the plan. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect union, even before the world was made in all of eternity, were in agreement that the cross would be the means by which God's people would be radically saved. The cross was not an accident. It was the purpose. It's why he came, which makes verse 17 important for us. It clearly states that the cross was the mission of Jesus. It's why he came. Jesus did not come the first time on a mission of condemnation. He came on a mission of love to bring salvation to those who would trust him. So these few verses, when we read verses 13 through 17, they teach us three things that I hope we won't ignore. Three things. God, one, God radically loves the world. God radically loves the world. So we shouldn't question God's love. His love for his people is what sent Jesus to the cross. It was his plan, his purposes. They did it together. It was agreed upon, planned out for our redemption. The cross is a demonstration of God's love for his people. 
The second thing is that we are in desperate need of salvation. Many people don't think they need rescuing, right? We may be here. Maybe you're one of those people. You think you're good enough, a good enough person who does enough stuff to get by with God. If that's the case and the cross wasn't necessary, why did Jesus die if we can figure this thing out on our own? Why do we need a substitute on a bloody cross if we can figure it out on our own? We can't. The cross demonstrably says we can't figure it out on our own. We can't do it on our own. We're sinners and we need a savior. The third thing I hope we learn from these few verses is that those who do not turn to Christ will indeed perish and perish forever. Hell is very real and it's eternal. And I hope that the reality of eternal punishment, the reality of hell, the reality of eternal ruin and perishing motivates us to share the gospel more in these days. I know it's hard to be in contact with people, but that doesn't mean that our missions has changed. We're still to share the gospel. The result of unbelief should be heartbreaking for us. So Jesus, in these next few verses that we're going to look at as we finish this up, is verses 18 through 21. He's going to explain this heartbreaking reality, the heartbreaking result of unbelief. For those who choose the path of unbelief, what awaits them? And he's doing this to open Nicodemus's eyes, right? Just like he is ours. It's good even for Christians to hear what the result of it is, right? It should be a motivation for us to share the gospel when we realize that there are serious consequences for unbelief. So if you look at verse 18 through 21, Jesus says that to believe in him is to stand uncondemned before God. To not believe is to stand condemned already. The word condemned is used three times in these verses. It means to separate, to put asunder, or to pick out. It conveys the idea of somebody who's been declared guilty in the courtroom, who's about to be dealt their punishment. They've been summoned so that judgment can be passed on them. They've been separated, so to speak, picked out for judgment. It should be interesting, the present tense, when Jesus talks about those who are unbelieving, when he talks about those who do not believe or already condemned, he uses present tense language. It's not that they will be condemned, right? Those who unbelieve will eventually be condemned. Jesus is implying to Nicodemus that those who do not believe in the Son stand condemned already. Even now, it's not those who fail to trust Christ um, who will be condemned. Jesus is clearly stating that to not believe in Jesus is to be already condemned. To be sure, this is where every person ever born begins, right? We aren't born morally neutral. We're born in sin. Born enemies and rebels of God. Separated from Him. Already under judgment. That's where life starts. That's why we need a Savior. But the, what that means for those who are in Christ, though, is that their condemnation has been removed. If those who do not believe stand condemned already, those who believe stand uncondemned, even now, right now, justified before God the Father. Romans 103, 8 through 12 demonstrate this really well. Steve, in our worship today, he read uh, 103, 1. But if you look at verses, Psalm 103, verse 8 through 12, this is how God, this is how God defines His compassion, His grace, His salvation for us. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, he will not always accuse us or be angry forever. We should be grateful for that. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. 
We all deserve hell. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. The Bible says that Christ bore our guilt on Calvary. For believers, for those of us who have trusted the Lord, repented of our sins, look to him for salvation. We don't have to carry the weight of our own guilt or our condemnation anymore. Christ has removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. But the devastating news is that for those who are not in Christ, even now you stand under judgment. You still bear the full weight of your sin and condemnation. Verse 19 expresses another heartbreaking reality for those who are in unbelief. It says that they reject the light because that they, they prefer darkness. And the light in this verse refers to the incarnation of Jesus. The very light of God, Christ, came into this world and he was rejected. Jesus is basically saying to Nicodemus, the reason that you and others won't believe in me is because you're in darkness. And it even goes beyond that. You're not just in darkness. You love it. You love it more than you love light. And why do they hate the light? Well, verse 20 answers that. It says that they hate it because their deeds are evil and the light would expose them for what they are. It's the same for us, right? That's how we're saved today. God exposed us by the light of Christ. He exposed our sin he exposed our need of a Savior. Those who are in unbelief are living in darkness because they choose it. They love it. Their hearts are blinded to the reality of their sin. That's one of the great gifts of the gospel. When we share the gospel with, with people, one of the things that God is doing through our sharing of the gospel is he is shining a light, a spotlight on their deep need of a Savior. Being blinded to the reality of their sin they're also blinded to the consequences of it. I'm sure many of you all are familiar with Jonathan Edwards, um, early American Puritan, uh, pastor, uh, president of Princeton Seminary uh, at the time. And he wrote a very famous sermon. Many of us had to read at some point in school, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in it, he makes the point that many who are in sin do not realize how close they are to the reality of their final judgment. Here's what he says. Even though they are in good health now and have no idea how they will ultimately die, they are not safe. Men are often in good health and totally not expecting death. And in a moment, they're facing eternity in the next world. The unconverted, unbelieving, are walking over the pit of hell on a rotten tarp. He put it rather bluntly there, but Jesus does as well, right? Jesus is very clear on what the consequences are for denying him, rejecting him, for unbelief. Here's the truth. We can either have our deeds exposed here and now in this life and believe in Christ and trust him. It's a mercy when God exposes your sin in this world and gives you the opportunity to repent and to trust him. When somebody shares the gospel with an unbeliever, that is God's mercy being directed towards that person living in darkness, giving them a light, a spotlight on their sin in order to repent. So you can either have your sins exposed here and now in this life, repent in Christ, trust Him, or you can despise the light and have the light expose your deeds one day at the day of judgment. Either way, Jesus wins. The light wins. The gospel wins. People's sins will be exposed either now or before the throne of God. 
Try as we may, we cannot hide our sin from God. It will be exposed. It is a mercy that God would allow it to be exposed now so that Christ may remove it from us as far as the east is from the west. So here's the reality of condemnation. It's hanging over the head of every unbeliever here and everywhere else in the world today. But the Bible is clear. It doesn't have to be. Verse 21, we're going to end on a positive note. Been rather gloomy so far. This is the positive, right? Verse 21, anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Instead of fleeing the light, Jesus says you should run to it. Those who are born again love the light. Their changed lives show that God is at work in them. Our sin would tell us to stay away from the light, right? Run away from it. It'll take all the things you love, all the things you hold dear. Or it'll say, stay away from there. You're too dirty. God can't do anything with you. But Jesus says, come to the light. I've already paid the price for your sin. There's no fear of shame. Repent. Embrace the truth of salvation. Stand uncondemned before God and show the world the great works that he's doing in you and has done for you. So here's why the story of Nicodemus is important for us. Nicodemus was a man who thought he just needed more information. He thought, like many in the church today, he thought that he was a God follower who just needed to learn a little bit more. He wanted to know what more he could do to ensure that he had eternal life. Even though that wasn't the question he asked, it was the question that Jesus answered. And he told Nicodemus, Jesus told Nicodemus, it wasn't about how much he knew, it was about who he knew. He told him it wasn't about what Nicodemus could do, it was about what he needed done to him. He didn't need more information, he needed to be born again. That's our deep need today. If you stand here today and you're a believer, God has done a work of new birth in you that's miraculous and we should praise him for it and thank God for it every day. If you're standing here today and you're in unbelief, you need to be born again. That's the message of Jesus. So we stand here in the midst of recovering from and really still in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. Pastor Mike preached for weeks about revival and the last two weeks about the attributes of God. And for some within the church in America, in order to experience revival, they need new birth. Many people who have been in church all their life still need to be born again. Many have been coming to church for years, making the same mistake as Nicodemus, thinking we just need to know a little bit more. We just need to know more. Maybe we can win God's affection with flattery like Nicodemus. I know you're from God, Jesus. You're a great teacher. Look at all the great things that you did. You may think that because you've been doing the right things for years, that you're a God follower like Nicodemus. Maybe you think just by being here, it makes you a God follower. But belief goes deeper than head knowledge. The Bible says that demons know the right things about Jesus. They believe, but at least that knowledge makes them shudder in fear. Jesus says that our biggest need is to be born again. We better hear him on this. Our biggest need is something we can't do ourselves. Our biggest need is something you can't give yourself. Our biggest need is a gift, an outpouring of the Spirit of God on a dead heart so that it may come alive and run to Jesus for salvation. 
We know eventually that Nicodemus took the words of Jesus to heart. We know that he experienced this new birth that Jesus talked about. It's a wonderful story. When you look at the conclusion of John's gospel, John 19 verse 39 tells us that when Jesus' bloody body was taken down from the cross to be married, here was Nicodemus, one who showed up risking his own livelihood and his own reputation with over 60 pounds of spices. That's a lot of money's worth of spices to anoint the body of his Messiah and his Lord. The man who had come to Jesus by night so he wouldn't risk exposure is now openly assisting those who are burying the body of Jesus. He's among the followers of Jesus. So I ask you today, are you born again? If so, then the promise of eternal life awaits for you. Even now, you have it. It's yours. You possess it. Christ gave it. You paid for it on the cross. It's yours. If you're not born again, then you're still in darkness. And one day the light will expose you to judgment. To enter the kingdom, Jesus says you must be born again. So if you're here and you're lost and you're unbelieving and you've never trusted Jesus, that's where revival starts for you.